Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 80 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. The podcast in which I take you with me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And what is true Cage Nirvana, you may ask? Well, it's only the highest, most purest, most efficient, most wonderful, most sexual, most emotional, most purest and esthetist forms of being only achievable. You guessed it by watching every film the man I call the Golden Hog of Hollywood, Nicholas Cage, has ever been in. This week, the journey continues. We enter the 80s stretch of episodes, not the 1980s, but episode 80, as we turn to Inconceivable. And this week, I was joined by film critic Kat Hughes in making her podcast debut, no less, on the Cage Rage podcast. It was a pleasure to have her on and talk about Inconceivable. In this, we cover what could be the most lifetime of Nicolas Cage's movies to date. We talk Cage merch. We talk about the very odd director behind all of this and whether, as was perceived to be by the makers, if this is a film for women. So please do join us for all of that and much, much more. As ever, all the usual links down in the description down below. You can find me on the social medias on Twitter at Cage underscore podcast, on Instagram at Cage Rage Pod, and I'm on all the usual streaming services as well. If you enjoyed the episode, if you enjoy the show, please consider giving it a rating on those uh, listening services. It helps the show grow and share it, retweet it, like on all the socials as well. But let's get right into it. It is episode 80, Inconceivable, Darren Lynch, Cat Hughes. We continue with 2017 with the thriller Inconceivable. And this week, Cage plays Brian, a married man whose relationship is pushed to the brink when his wife's friend begins meddling in their affairs. Now, joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if Inconceivable is believable or straight up irredeemable is all round good egg and reviewer Kat Hughes. Kat, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, talking all things, uh, all things Nick Cage, and all things inconceivable. That is the that is the energy, that is the attitude. That's all we can ask for. Um, so, with ever with these um, with these podcasts and these episodes, I'm always curious to know when we kick things off um, for yourself, Cat. You know, uh, where are you on uh, the Nick of this Cage scale? Uh, do you rate the man? Do you hate him? Tolerate him? Uh, how is Nick Cage for you? I mean, Nick Cage is, you know, he's, I mean, he's Nick Cage. Um, in our circle of friends, he is, you know, he is the man, you know, you do, you seek out his his films. I mean, um, it was my birthday on New Year's Eve and uh, my friends bought me a uh, Nicolas Cage, well, they made me a Nicolas Cage mug uh, on Moonpig um, with uh, all of his classic performances you know the wicker man face off pig um so yes i'm very much a, a nick cage person 
you're in the Nick, Nick Cage uh, echelon of things. You get yourself the Nick Cage merchandise. Um, yes. Speaking of mugs, Christmas this year, I got a Nicholas Cage mug and coaster, which I've uh, foolishly neglected to bring with me to the recording today to show off. Um, I'm trying to think. I've got... I've I've now acquired two of the Nick Cage sequin pillows. We sort of like rub the sequins and his face appears. Yeah. Uh one has pillow, one does not. Um Conair a Conair printed shirt. I've got um my partner made like a sort of a hand stitched uh Nicolas Cage vampire's kiss face on like a white jumper last year, which was sort of top tier cage stuff because I suppose I don't know if this is the same for you, but I've in my circle of friends at least have become the cage guy. Um, and it's almost become, it, I, I'd say almost, it is my personality now, basically. I don't know if that's become a similar thing for you. Well, the package, my birthday package came addressed to a Dr. Cat Cage Hughes. Um, so <laughs> it was lucky that I was able to receive that because I don't know how you get that from the post office because I do not have that ID to prove that I am that person. Um, but one of my friends uh, sort of has more of the, the cage title than us. Um, they came to stay at our house. And a few weeks later, my husband was like, oh, I forgot we had that framed picture of Nick Cage in the spare room. And I was like, what picture of Nick Cage in the spare room? And while they came to stay, they had secreted a framed, a silver framed picture of Nick and left it in our guest room, um, <laughs> which is lovely. Uh, but then outside of that, they, him and his brothers caged his parents' house when they went on holiday. So they were like house sitting and they went armed with like boxes of Nicholas Cage's face and they literally attacked the house. Wedding photos were suddenly Nick Cage instead of everybody. Um, video covers, um, mugs, underneath of mugs, there was a Nick Cage face. Um, his parents are still finding them over a year since this happened. <laughs> um, I, think, I think alcohol was involved at some point because they sure. did start writing a list of where they put stuff so that they could track how his parents were doing. Um, and then alcohol got involved and they just lost track. So even they don't know how much more Nick is left hiding in the house. So, <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a big man in, a, in our circle, but I don't quite have the title of uh, the most Nick Cage. <laughs> I mean, to get to have your house caged, and what what an all-encompassing term it is. I mean, for someone like me, that would be an honour. That would be a like a, like Easter every day, a little a little cage egg hunt. You know, he's turning up on mugs. He's somehow in a piece of bread. It's like when you when you get those images of people who find like Christ in an omelette or something. <laughs> I imagine that's what it would be a uh, sort of akin to. Um, I don't think I've got any secret cages around here, or if I do, that would that probably would have been a classic drunk me move to cage myself. Yeah. Um, in in the year of our Cajun Lord twenty twenty two, I did have a Nick Cage sort of life size cut out, but um, my cat has I don't know if intentionally, but has systematically destroyed it by sort of taking out the legs, so now it it can't stand anymore. So it was um. It made it to about eleven months, just shy of, just shy of a birthday before it uh, um, got taken out again. So he knows what he's done. Is the thing no respect? No respect for the uh, the one true god in this house, the man I call the Golden Hog of Hollywood. Um, but speaking of which, um, obviously we're here today to talk about 2017's inconceivable. Um, now for, this was one um, I had not 
heard of before very recently. I'd only watched it like an hour before recording today. Uh, for you, Kat, Inconceivable, is this a film that you had seen before today? It is, yeah. I saw it um, when it was originally released. Um, it was a film that sort of came came to me in a reviewing capacity and, you know, Nick Cage was there. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a watch. Um, also, it had the added bonus of um, Nikki Whelan, who I'm a big Neighbours nerd and she was uh, she was in Neighbours many moons ago. So that was an extra incentive for me to uh, to get it watched. Amazing. I mean, there's a there's a few names in this Nikki Whelan um, and a few returning uh, sort of Cage alumni folk as well. Mm. Nikki Whelan had been in uh, the uh, the delightful Left Behind only a few years previous. Uh, Gina Gershon was face off as well. So we've got a few uh, returning characters popping up in 2017, which you always like to see. Um, but this this was another one. Uh, for me, like I said, I'd not heard of it before, and it was one of those things when I was, I suppose, starting out doing this podcast when you think to yourself, oh, Nick Cage has got a lot of films. And then you look at his like filmography and you're like, oh, he has he has so many films. I, and this was one that was not on my radar at all. I think this was a point in time, maybe with an exception here and there, where um, Nick Cage had largely sort of disappeared from, mm. uh, I guess, cinema releases i suppose 2017 is sort of coming towards the end of that we've got uh mandy and of course spider-man into the spider-verse that come out in 2018 so he's on the tip of our tongue again as of next year but 2017 was a bit of um uh an odd year an odd output for cage um if i, if I just list off some of the films inconceivable of course we kicked off with arsenal um, which, if you'd ever seen the 93 film Deadfall, he reprised his character from that. Right. Um, or I suppose for the listeners, if you've ever seen the YouTube video, uh, sort of Nick Cage losing his shit, about 90% of the video is his character from Deadfall in that, um, which is weird because his character dies in Deadfall, and this is kind of like a weird... I think I think we're sort of slowly dubbing it now. There might be a Cage multiverse out there. Right. Um, I think that we're slowly coming to realise. Um, then we have Vengeance, a love story, um, and it sort of tailed off 2017 with Mom and Dad as well. Um, so was there anything else in this 2017 palette that you'd seen there, or was was it just inconceivable for you? I went to the cinema to see Mom and Dad, I remember seeing that. Um, but yeah, not not much not much more than that. I think the other thing that stuck out was that this was an Arrow Films release as well. I tend to watch a lot of their films, but this, from watching it, doesn't really seem to fit with what you would normally consider to be an Arrow Film film. It seems, I don't know, a bit more Lifetime movie than Arrow. <laughs> I think that's a very kind way of um, putting the comparisons there. Um, so so a, a strange... So, um, sort of in between film. I, I think this was again one of, I suppose, indicative of the time period for Cage. The 2010s as a whole, I think, percentage wise, probably not the best decade for Cage. There's a few, you know, big hitters in there. You've got um, uh, Mom and Dad, which I did in, really enjoy. Um, we've got obviously Joe in there, the ever underrated Joe, the Croods, and of a little bits and pieces like that before we get to your Mandy's and your colour out of spaces. Um, but there was a lot of, I suppose, and uh, I, I, I always have to say this respectfully, I think t- maybe taking money for a paycheck movie 
which I suspect inconceivable probably was. Um, but then it, sort of reading his involvement in this and I suppose looking early on at the director, Jonathan Baker, um, this was sort of a, a first effort for Jonathan Baker. And I suppose to pass the question was, is Jonathan Baker someone you'd heard of like before, during, after, inconceivable? No, not really. It wasn't until I was sort of like revisiting the film for this that I sort of did a bit more digging. But he, I mean, as noticed, the end of the film is dedicated to Warren Beatty. I mean, he's a he's be a big Warren Beatty fan. I think he he lives in his old house, um, and obviously he's got Faye Dunaway in the cast here. I guess it was as close as he could he could maybe get to Warren, um, <laughs> you know, restraining order or whatever in place. So. Yeah, I can't. And I mean, he's he's in the film as well, um, which is, you know, interesting for a director to be, be in in a film. I mean, I think he's in Entourage as well, and I watched Entourage religiously, but I cannot remember him for the life of me in in Entourage. His, if you look on IMDb, um, his filmography is a very interesting read. I mean, Jonathan Baker himself, everything pre inconceivable is just a very, who is this man? Um, He's, I don't know what he is, and I'm even though he's in the film, I'm not convinced he's real. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not convinced Jonathan Baker is a real man. Um, because it seems he was very much of the early and mid 2000s a reality TV star, right? Um, and then I suppose 13, 15 years have passed, and either he's amassed some kind of money from TV appearances or and or he's cashing in a lot of favors here. Um, so I was looking into this, and in 2004-05, uh, it looks like he was one of the cast of The Amazing Race with his then-partner or wife. I'm not sure if they're still together now. Uh, this was season six, and he was quite—he seemed to be quite known as basically the, the villain of the season. Um, right. Who's that, uh, the Nasty Nick? He was the nasty Nick of his time. Um, he was America's nasty Nick. Um, I don't know, um, Jerky John, if we, if, if you want to throw out something there. Um, but they were quite known for being a very argumentative couple. And there was a, a, an article from the New York Post about 20 years ago, um, and apparently some producers said that they had to tell him to calm down and chill out a few times. They were saying this is the first time they've had to like intervene um, because of the situation between them, and um, this led to one episode where, like, apparently he he pushed his partner over. Like, I, I'm not sure of like the outside the frame sort of context of it. Um, but Baker sort of responded to this, said the editing had framed him in a negative light. He isn't abusive, um, and what audiences were seeing was, and I quote, a heightened version of stress and obsession mixed with a medication for a sickness called sarcoidosis. Um, the the producers would reply that they didn't know if that was the truth or bullshit. So, so the reason I bring this up as well, and I don't know if you saw any of this in your research um, about the enigma that is Jonathan Baker, um, is that they're like scant interviews that he did about the promotion of this film um, and he was something he pushed very much in those interviews was that this that Inconceivable was very much in his mind a uh, a film for women um, so he said I wanted to make a film for women it's hard out there to make movies let alone make movies that have 
women cast and he said the reason he wanted to make a film involving women is because their values are completely underrated in terms of Hollywood um so I, I suppose before we start getting into the film would you say, would you say this is this something that came across f- for you that his um I, I suppose hopeful well-intentioned um idea of this film did, the, did this and I, and I hope that you know I don't come across a sort of Bakerist dickhead myself in asking this um but like, did this come across to you as like, yes, inconceivable? That is very much a film for women. I don't know. I mean, everyone that I know that's seen it has been a man. I don't know any other any any of the women that have, have seen it. I guess I think a lot of the men are drawn for the for the cage factor. Um, but I guess it, it obviously deals with um, with fertility and you know women's bodies and you know where where is that line? But. I'm not sure if I would necessarily say it was a, a women's film per se. Obviously, it has three, well, two main female characters and what in a couple of supporting ones. But I don't know. It's uh, it's not women that I myself am familiar with. I think I would say. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I I, I come at this from the obviously obviously a, a different perspective, but I I sort of went into that with that sort of in mind, and I was kind of like. Well, from 2004 to 2016 and 17, when you were making this film, um, it seems like you've done, I guess, like a 180 as a person. Like, I read into this and I say, hopefully I'm not reading between the lines. And like I said, hopefully this is well-intentioned and that was at the sort of the front of your mind to say, I'm, you know, you're trying to do, um, I, I suppose, a, a good thing with this film, you know, regardless of your opinions on the finished product here. Uh, that seemed to be at least what Cage has said in interviews, what he promoted this role to him with as well. Um, he said he didn't want a male star in the lead. I said, this is a film about fertility, motherhood, women's bodies. Um, he discussed this with Cage when casting him um, and basically told Cage, you'll be serving a really good cause, to which uh, Cage agreed. Um, and he said the film topic was fresh. Jonathan's ideas were great, and the script was a new area for me to explore. I wanted to support women in film, and when Jonathan brought this to me and showed me his vision for the film, I knew I wanted to be part of his journey to make it. Um, so I, I suppose, in many ways, the film is a journey. Um, if if it's for, I don't know if it's for the same reasons that Baker intends, but. Um, I suppose for yourself as like an overview before we start sort of breaking this down. Um, to go back into this for like a second viewing, was it was there, did anything change in a second viewing for you, or did it still sort of? Uh, I suppose was it similar um, or hold up to the first viewing when you had for this? Well, I mean, the first time I watched it um, was before I had a child, and now I have a three year old, so it was kind of interesting to to see it from from that point of view because obviously it is a film about about motherhood um, and, and children and, and the girls in the film are four, say mine is, mine is three. So it was, it was a little bit, there was a few things that I was like, that's not quite what being a mum is. I mean, there's this great bit at the, at the start of the film where the two women become friends and they have this like mum kid play date, which is they're all sat around with blankets and wine. And then it becomes a bit of a sleepover. And it's always just sort of sat watching it last night going, where's my like mum blanket wine time because you know I haven't had that yet I didn't know that we could do that you know I thought you know we had to sort of keep an eye on the kids when we were play- when we were at a play date but apparently not you can just you know drink one have a sleep and leave them to it 
I mean, sort of seeing that and like how quickly that all comes together, you meet someone else at like at the the park, and then you've got a play date, and you're all having a great time, and then it seems very, very lovely and convenient and cozy, and I was like, that looks decent. That does, you know, I wouldn't. I mean, I I can't speak to parenthood. I have a cat, um, so I I believe our experiences will be very very dissimilar. Um, my cat screams in my face at two in the morning um that's as close to having a child um as i am in my life at this point but um it seems like wine would be very nice to uh deal with a cat as um but i'm sure he just knocked that over because that's what he does he he ruins my cage stands and he ruins my sleep pattern but I mean, I have two cats and I will say that I've had one of them for 13, one of them for 14 years. And I had less sleep when I used to share a bedroom with them than I have had with my toddler. So the cats are technically worse than when than kids. She's more needy. She's, you know, she's less independent. So, you know, you are sort of sort of seeing some of the parallels there with parenthood with their, with having a cat. So <laughs> I, I knew it. This was this has all been a this has all been a test for later life. I knew yeah. it. I'm, I can finally say, listeners, I'm prepared. I can do it. 2022 is my year. Um, but it it all seems very very nice. The uh, the play day and um, this is where we meet Linda as well, played by uh, Natalie Eva Marie, who I sort of recognised because she's had um, jaunts in the WWE as a wrestler. Because um, mm. I'm a big I'm a big wrestling fan. I was like. Oh, it's you, um, and I, sp- I suppose because and this is say it respectfully, she's not known as the best wrestler in the world. So when I saw her, I was like, I kind of thought, you know, are we going to get like a similar acting output here? And I will say of her, and I suppose with the rest of the cast, really, there wasn't really anyone who I thought was just was like bad or anything. I thought, in fairness, the acting was quite solid sort of considering i guess like the uh you know like the script they were given and everything um was was there anyone who particularly stood out for you acting wise um or would you say everything was just was like i guess like me everything was all right yeah i mean i think that nikki whelan did did a really good job with katie because i guess that there is such a, a an easy way to play that character as like weird and crazy from the outset but it does sort of take a little bit you know the viewer sort of sees that there's a few lingering scenes on it where the viewer's like oh what's up with her but she doesn't necessarily do anything to alert anybody to her other motives until a little way into the film you know there's other films that have similar similar plot lines where it's you know from you know scene one it's like that person is crazy but here it's a little more subtle. And like I say, knowing her more for her work on Neighbours, which, you know, isn't, I mean, I know there's a lot of people that have come through Neighbours, Margot Robbie, Guy Pearce, and that, you know, there's been plenty of good actors that have come through there, but Neighbours isn't known for its, you know, its, its serious, hard-hitting acting. So I think she did sort of a, a good job at sort of, you know, standing outside of, of her previous work. And I think with, I think with, it's almost like with, this, I think, Australian actors that there's, a 99% chance that any Australian actor you've heard of has at some point been in Neighbours or a oh, home, my. home and away as well. Um, but Neighbours is not one that I ever kept up with. Um, but when I saw Australia, I thought there's probably a chance that you've been in Neighbours. And here we are, theory confirmed that um, all Australian actors 
have to come through neighbours. Um, I think it's basically like acting. This is acting school for them. We're watching our. Yeah, it's like the villain casualty for you know for for UK actors. You know, like James McAvoy, Kira Knightley. They were you know both in the Bill and other people have been in Casualty. It's it's their version of of, of that, I guess. Yeah, you've got to work. Um, I'm thinking like Midsummer Murders as well. Now I seem to remember um, uh, various people whose names have escaped me. He's, he's uh, this is like ridiculous. I love Lord of the Rings. Legolas was in it once, and he got stabbed with a pitchfork. I don't know why I remember that. Um, that's that's the way my my brain works. So I think it's for um, it's almost like a rite of passage, and you work your way up as like corpse to body on stretcher. Um, to concerned family member in waiting room, and maybe one day you'll make nurse. Um, so this is this is the progression of acting the way I see it. A man who got a B at GCSE level drama because he did a Scottish accent um, for his for his piece. So, um, but I thought it was it was um, an interesting arc with Katie, and I guess the way that the film. Um, displays it to you as well because you get these mixtures of like uh, flashbacks and like I say it's not all explicitly spelled out for you at the start it's quite a slow burn thing as we're trying to figure out um, you know is she you know, what's the deal here is she just sort of misunderstood is there something more sinister going on um, and I suppose through the medium of Katie the film does throw there's a lot of twists there's a lot of mm. I guess twists and additions to the twists. Um, I think it feels like it was trying to set a um, a precedent to have like a twist or build to twist every twenty to thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, so with with all the twists on twists on twists here, um, did they sort of I suppose um, successively work for you? Did they work as a build or? Because um, I think for me, it kind of like there felt to be so many twists, and then sometimes not so much twists. It was almost like the film just saying like, um, "Here's some information that might just might not be true. It might just be a bit of a lie uh, to deceive you, the audience." Um, did did the twists work for you? I definitely think some of them did. I mean, the scene with um, with Katie and Linda in the uh, in the sea or in the lake, wherever, where um, you first sort of hear. Katie's sort of real her mask slips and she sort of reveals some of her reasons for for being around that wasn't quite what I was expecting and I guess there was it wasn't necessarily the twist that surprised me but the way that they sort of subverted some of the conventions I mean in in many of these stories you know whether a woman moves into a house you know the husband is is seduced um but you know Nick Cage is is thankfully you know he's 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 left to just be a doctor doctor here so I think it was more the subverting those things that sort of surprised me than necessarily the twists because I think once you've gone like you say once you've gone so far in it's you are you're expecting that that next that next twist what they're going to reveal now now where are we so yeah I think that initially I was like oh that's an interesting topic that I don't think that's been done before um, but after then it was like okay I kind of get where this is going yeah you can you can, I think, once you get the first twist and it starts, um, I guess, snowballing towards the finale, you can sort of see where a few of these things were coming. Um, I wasn't expecting Linda to be dispatched, though, so I was like, oh, but it, I think it wasn't so much that it made me go, like, oh, what? But more the fact that um, Katie had just 
stripped down to her underwear, just got into the the lake and just hit it with a dumbbell. And I was like, Christ, that was that seemed for the film so far excessively brutal. Um, mm. So that was like, oh, I didn't expect that. But then it was not just hitting it with the dumbbell, but then just pushing her down for a bit of a drowning as well. She Kate <laughs> Katie loves drowning people. Um so that 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 sort of took me a little bit by surprise. Um but then I think the thing with Linda's death, and I suppose we should note here sort of the build up is um in terms of the twists as well. Um Brian and Andrew have been trying for children. They've had um uh, there's been Andrew with a number of miscarriages before there was an egg donor. Um and then Linda offers um or, or explains that she's gonna be a surrogate for the family, and this is when the masks start slipping for Katie, and she just, um, I don't think we're even at like quite the halfway point. She just out, outright gives most of her motivation here. She's just um, like, uh, no, I won't be having that. Actually, I was the egg donor for Angela, and now I'm coming to get my baby back. And that the the twist that Angela and Brian's daughter is actually hers. Um, and that she wants to get her daughter back. Um, so it's like like a lot of information here about Katie, followed by a dumbbell uppercut. And then you're like, Christ, Christ almighty. Um, and then Linda's just, there's just kind of like um, a very short clip of Linda just washed up, found by a couple. And then nothing really seems to come of it. They kind of just, just you just let it happen. Um, so there was kind of, for me, there was like just no. I think it just skips forward a few months then, and there's kind of no real fallout except there's a picture of Linda in black and white on the fridge a bit later. Um, do Do you think they should have kind of, um, I don't know, followed up on that a bit more and not done the time skip? Well, because that's the thing is, it's like you know, bang, she's in the water, then cut to um, Katie lazing in a pool with with a baby bump. So I guess you know you you're left to fill in that. Oh, I guess a weren't that upset that their friend died who was going to be their surrogate and then they immediately went would you want to have the baby because you know she's she's not around anymore I do think that maybe I think it would probably be a different film if they'd have continued down because then there would have probably been the inevitable like investigation into her death and then you would see how Katie reacted and maybe again her you know she starts to, to slip because you know how she I don't think much of this was orchestrated and, and premeditated in a way I think she's sort of acting on on impulse for you know fighting for fighting for what she sees as her babies so it would I think it would have been a different film if they had continued it but it would have been interesting to see the reaction to that because it does just come across as you know not that much time has passed but this woman who was going to carry the baby died and they just went next (laughs) yeah that's like Oh, that's a shame. Uh, Katie, real quick, I need to ask you a question. Is 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 kind of how it came across there. Um, but I suppose that there was another, I guess even with the Katie and Linda thing, there's another sort of, maybe this is a twist, maybe this isn't, or this is one of those things where um, the film, I think, just tries to deceive the audience a bit. Because um, we're getting these hints that maybe not everything is is right with Katie. The film starts with a clip of her trying to escape a house of a baby and stab what we think is her husband, um, but we we sort of find that later on, you know, maybe not not all is as it seems. Um, then Angela comes home one day from work, goes to the guest house where Katie is staying, 
and then um, Pfizer just sleeping with someone, and then Katie very coyly and suggestively turns to the window and just slowly covers up like a breast, like, oh, hi, Angela. Um, and we're, let, we're supposed to believe that this might be Brian, um, because I, th- I think around the same time... Um, Angela, they said that they were trying for another baby. Angela just had a miscarriage. Mm. Um, But then sometime after that, Brian wanted to um, try and do that old their lovemaking. But she was like, no. She's like, oh, therefore he's probably going to do it with Katie. It sets you up to believe that. It doesn't show you who she's sleeping with. But then you find out in the next scene that it's Linda. Um, So so with, with that, it's kind of like, I think I expected there to be um, some kind of lust angle, if that's the right term, between Katie and Brian, because it kind of felt that's where the film might be going. But I think, as you said earlier, um, Nick is, throughout all of this, he's just plays the role of good man. Um, yeah. <laughs> I suppose touching on Cage's role here, because, as mentioned earlier, he does take quite a backseat in this role. He's very much a supporting character, and just, and his character is just ninety percent really nice man who sometimes bickers with his mother. Um, in, in terms of Cage's character, do you think the character maybe could have had a bit more, or do you think the amount that we got of Cage was uh, was enough for you? Well, I mean, I think I sort of I noted down like you know what do we know about his character? Like he is a doctor, he's a motorcycle enthusiast, he likes a jog. Apparently he's good in the kitchen. That's mentioned during one of the early dinner scenes that we, I think the only thing we ever see him do in the kitchen is chop. Um, I mean, I think that's pretty much all we see anybody do there. They're chopping or they're blending. I'm not sure there's much cooking going on, but I think it would have been, would have been nice because towards the end, his character does, does take on a more central part, but because he has been so sidelined to just sort of checking in on his wife every now and again, and like say bickering with his mum, there's not, it's kind of like, where did you come from? (laughs) <laughs> when he's suddenly thrust into into that main role, so it would be nice to see to see those scenes. But then I guess they were I guess Baker was trying to sort of tell it I guess from from Angela's point of view, where I think it turns up that Katie and and Brian have been talking and having conversations about her. So whether he was supposed to be kept there for that angle, so that you don't know that he's he's that bothered. But I mean, also, I mean, you say he's a good man, but there are some times where he's like, is he, is he a good husband? Because, you know, when she's coming and saying, you know, I don't think Katie's okay. By that point, he's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, she's, you know, I mean, he, I mean, they name, mm-hmm. they, they name her son without her there. And he's just like, well, what's your problem? Like, that was one of the names that we had, but, but you know, that's the naming of their child. Come on, Nick. <laughs> Yeah, that that's very true. Very true. Um, like I suppose that the other ten percent, he's just a bit clueless when the script needs him to be. So it's, yeah, so he's either motorcycle running enthusiast and just dropping in some his opinions about Prince at the start, which definitely have to have been ad libbed Cage. Um, or and then there's that other other portion where he's kind of like, so I think Katie did some murders. Nah. Um, <laughs> And it, it 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 kind of came across a little bit like that, um, but then it's 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 quite subdued as well. Um, it's kind of almost like a mix here. Like um, I know the the writer was Chloe King on this, um, 
who was looking into this. It looks like this this script must have been written, I think, some time ago. It's been on a studio's desk for a while until it came into the hands of Jonathan Baker. Um, there was another interview that I found. He said he um, picked up the script and rewrote it. So part of me wonders, you know, again, with, with how... Um, almost positively, aggressively, he was pushing this being a film for women, like he was trying to write this, like, my God, you're a good man, you're such a fucking good man, oh, great, well done, John, what a good man, what a good man Brian is, except for this part, oh, oh, tension, but now you're a good man again. So, other than the fact that he is in the film as a, just a kind of a a non-entity, really, called Bear, was his, his name was Bear, I think they, his was the nickname, Um, it almost felt to me like Jonathan Baker was kind of maybe trying to write himself as Brian. It, it came across a bit... I don't know. I think just from what I've read about Jonathan Baker, it just, it just made this kind of seem a bit self-indulgent for me. And I suppose, as you said, the fact that he's he pops up in the film as well for reasons. And I think um, uh, the child actor Maddie was actually his daughter as well. Um, So he he kind of, like, pops up in the role of Okay, this guy clearly isn't an actor um, with such lines as, we doing lunch later, and yes. you've got to take a look at this. Um, so this, He's uh, very, I was, I was sort of, I was watching it sort of thinking it's it's almost like if you sort of genetically mutated Greg Sestero and Tommy Wiseau together, <laughs> that character in this film is probably who you would come out the other side with. Oh, wow. Greg Wiseau, Tommy Sestero. Um, that, you know what, that's actually frighteningly accurate, um, it, Jonathan Baker here. Um, I'm trying to think, because he didn't have a lot of lines, he was just kind of, he was just introduced as a friend, um, and then just given the purpose of fulfilling a DNA test later on yeah. down the line. So that's all he does, he's, he's there to fill a seat at their various summer gathering meals that they have he's a colleague of Angela and um he's and I will say you know a credit to him as an actor at the end when he was sat down with Nick Cage he opened that folder without looking at it I liked that um I thought that was some very good folder work some of the best that I've seen in my time watching Nicolas Cage films um but yeah I suppose I suppose to go back to to Cage though it's I mean, there wasn't. I don't think there was anything of your typical, and uh, you know, self-promotional horn to here. Nothing of like your cage rage here or what you might look for. This is just a cage was there doing a fine job. I don't think there was anything necessarily bad about the performance, but um, I think like a number of films at this period of time, this was um, this screamed of uh, um, an easy money film to me um again not not to say that he was he was bad but then it's just when the scripts required him to be i guess figuratively literally uh a a bit thoughtless like i said with with the the part about picking picking the name he was like oh yeah why did you pick the name gabriel was like oh i thought we decided on it it's like no we said that was one of three and then it was kind of like Oh well, I'm going to go and stand by Katie now because drama. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> that's that's largely how it came across for me. Um, do you, 
I, I mean, I don't know if it would, given what we said. Do you think this this film would have been served if if his character was um, maybe, lack of a better term, a bit more emotive here, a bit more invested in what was going around, other than just he's either neutral to everything or he's not siding with Angela? If he did just seem to be like in between like Angela and his mum, who were both at different times telling him the same thing. But, you know, that when, when Angela finally starts to come to him and says, oh, I think Katie's a bit weird, he's not like, yeah, no, my mum's been saying that for a while. He was just like, what? This is the first I'm hearing. Well, of course Katie's not. She couldn't be like that. So that was, <laughs> you know, that was, uh, you know, a little frustrating. But I mean, you know, what you were saying with the, uh, you know, the, the um, what we've come to expect from Cage, he does clear out a party. Um, you know, he does get yes. he does get a little shouting. Um, you know, that's the quickest I've seen someone, you know, separate women from free champagne um, <laughs> in the film. Uh, and then, you know, towards the end, he does get his bit where he gets to bask in the in the sun with the sun in his face. And it must have been some sort of like nod to Conair that Jonathan slipped in there to, to make the fans happy. But yeah, it was a then I guess it was a, an easy an easy part. For Cage, but I do think it's one that he does. He did at least seem interested in doing, and I guess that's something about him that you know you're discovering on this journey that he does get very passionate about the films that he's involved in. This this is one of the things um, that there's always with Cage, even with the films like this, and might not be the most Cage centric films or films where you know it may have been an easy payday either way you want to look at it. Um, he you see all the performances like this where people may have gone into the film for the very same reason as he did and like they're they're devoid of soul and heart and personality there's kind of nothing there there's just but with with cage you know he gives it he gives it a go there's he he doesn't um i think one of the things that i've appreciated about him more and more since watching his films and going through this process um is that i he he doesn't think he's above a role mm. um even if sometimes maybe the script doesn't always service him or you find in a lot of cases um directors don't always know how to use him like sometimes you've got to tug that cage leash sometimes you've got to unclip it and just let him run after that tennis ball um but so sometimes you know it's you, you've got to kind of go through the levels to to sort of understand where he's coming from but i don't think there's ever a, maybe with some grand exceptions, bringing a laugh behind again, where he's just kind of not not there. I think my guest um, Alex Kelly on that episode said he adds he was the acting equivalent of running tap water in a left behind. Um, but with this, it was like I didn't not believe him. Um, mm. Like I said, there's there's this questionable moments where he's just not taking his wife and his mother's side even though they're telling him she's not good she's real bad she's a stinker and he's like oh but she's got the kids and i've got time to do stuff um so it was it, it, it wasn't the worst role i've ever seen him i can put it that way um i suppose bringing up his mother as well played by faye dunaway donna um she I suppose to, to kick this off with yourself, what what did you make of sort of like Donna's inclusion in this and the role of um, Brian's mother in this film? Well, I think, I don't know if there's some scenes missing or something with the character because initially she is very anti-Katie and then all of a sudden towards the end, she's she seems to quite like her. And it's for the, we never saw that moment where 
they where she sort of switched switched her opinion it's just like so many months because she's there saying like you shouldn't have this woman have your baby and then a couple of weeks before the baby's born she's like what are you going on about Angela you know Katie's absolutely fine I've you have no problem with her so mm. I'm not quite sure if some of that role was left on the on the cutting room floor um because she did seem to have more of a presence at the beginning and then just sort of sort of fizzled out towards the end which was a which was a shame because she was a nice you know it would have been nice because her and Angela are sort of at odds towards the beginning she sort of looks down on the fact that Angela chose a career as a doctor rather than being a mother so it would have been nice to maybe see those two women unite to take on this common threat instead of her just deciding that again she couldn't be bothered to deal with it yeah I I, I do agree with what you mean there because it is kind of like we're introduced to her as part of one of the various um sitting on a bench outside and having a little toast to the summer um gatherings that they have and straight away she's questioning Katie she's like who are you where are you from what's your deal why are you here and is very um um very much interrogating her just about everything to do with her life and what what she's doing and then suddenly she's kind of like oh but she does she chops good she does good chop on pancake um looking into this as well because it, it wasn't something I sort of picked up upon straight away I suppose the film does a decent job of hiding it but um apparently she broke a, a leg or foot very close to filming so you'll note that throughout this she's always sitting down um and apparently Baker said he refused to recast the part because it was written specifically for her uh, and he said she was in so much pain and she came to the set and she worked and did what she needed to do. She's an Oscar winner, a great actress. And this is a small comeback role that was written in 12 hours so that it would flow with the script. Um, and again, you know, I don't wish to be disrespectful, but it comes across like it was written in 12 hours. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. I say it does feel like there's something missing with the character and he said you know earlier you know he's he's a big fan of of her co-star of her old co-star so i wonder if it was just a, a way to try and get close to his to his hero that's really how it comes across isn't it um because this this is this is again going back to like baker this is one of those things you know you've got like Faye Dunaway here you've got Gina Gershon you've got Nicolas Cage uh, you know, I can't speak to all the actors' availability at that time, but it kind of comes across to me with just some of the people who are in the film, um, because this is very much a film of like really Angela and Katie, and I suppose Cage is there to an extent. So it's it's really a sort of three-handed piece for the most part, but it seems a lot like Baker. Baker has something on someone on Hollywood and was able to cash in a lot of chips. Um, to to sort of get the people that he got here. Um, looks like he was supposed to get Lindsay Lohan as well, I think, for the mm. Katie role. Um, but he said that the studio just sort of didn't want her um, and didn't want to go in that direction. Um, and then he uh, ended up going with uh, sort of the the role that we got for Katie as well um, in Nikki Whelan. Um, I suppose, do you think Lindsay Lohan would have brought anything different to the role? I think it would have been an interesting inclusion, maybe? Or do you think we've got something very similar? I mean, I definitely think it would have potentially have got a bigger release. I mean, Lindsay Lohan, you know, her personal life has sort of taken over her her celebrity. 
um, combined with Nicolas Cage, who obviously has a, a certain reputation, I think seeing those two on a billing block would have generated a lot more attention from a lot more people. Um, but I think it was after she left that it was Nick Cage who suggested Whelan for the part. So I, um, I actually spoke to, to Nikki around the time of the release and um, she basically said that Nick called her because of the, the previous work. He mm. called her up and was like, there's this part, I think it'd be great. So do you want to come and do it? I guess, again, that's another you know testament to him just being like, okay, so we can't go with what we wanted to, but I know this other person and I think she'll be great. Um, so yeah. Man, look at that, Nicholas Cage, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Look at that one of one of the good one of the good guys, one of the good ones, um, giving us giving us more Nikki Whelan in a post Neighbours world for her as but well. But then I also have to wonder, you know, did is that how you know Gina got involved as well? Was it just you know was it was it Baker or was it Nick going like, well, you know what, you want someone who's about my age who could pass as you know my wife? Well, you know, me and Gina worked together in you know face off that worked so why not give her a buzz and <laughs> yeah I think, would, I think like we're saying it would be interesting to know how a lot of people uh, in this film got involved um so, so i mean it sounds as likely as anything else that you might have said um nicholas cage has got a rolodex of actor and age specific roles um for films that he's starring in he, he knows the right people to go to um but I suppose that you know, whenever on the topic of sort of Gina Gershon as well and her character of Angela, really carrying a lot of this movie alongside um, Katie as well, um, and, and both of them, both of them have, I guess, sort of darkness in their histories. They've got, um, uh, they slowly can find you know other bits of their backstories as well. Um, obviously, with uh, Angela, she'd had. The numerous miscarriages had to go to egg donors to surrogates. Um, it'd been sort of an ongoing issue for her. And I mean, get that sort of nice scene where they, where her and Katie open up to each other, and she said, "You know, we've we've had trouble trying for children. We're trying again." And Katie says that she escapes bad relationships in the past, but doesn't elaborate too much. Um, I think throughout this, I think you know, as I've said with the majority of the acting here, um, I. I enjoyed what um, Gina Gershwin was doing. I think I found there wasn't really anything in the the acting that was like, mm, I think we're a bit, uh, this is a bit too much one way or, or too soap opera. I think everything had some grounding and it felt like uh, that they sort of believed in what they were saying. So I definitely um, liked the performance from um, from from Gina Gershwin here. Um I suppose, you know, the same question to yourself um, as she's carrying most of this movie, really. How was her sort of arc and uh, performance for you? I mean, because again, she could have gone, same with, with the character of Katie, she could have gone really melodramatic and really over the top. And there's a, there's a couple of scenes where Katie takes her daughter and you know, refers to her as her own daughter. She's, oh, you know, you know, mummy's here. And, you know, Angela just quietly watches it and then goes into another room and then brings it up at a later date but I guess there would have been an acting choice for her to be like get away from her Cora she's not your mum I'm your mum so I did appreciate the fact that they did try and keep it a lot more level-headed and restrained than it could have it could have been because it made it I mean it's it's a kind of plot line that you see in something like Dynasty or you know 
Like mm. I say, a Hallmark movie, a Lifetime movie, you know, you read about and take a break. But it didn't sensationalise it as much as I was expecting it to. I was expecting it to be a, I'm going to just like sit here poking fun at it. But it actually does sort of draw you in with the fact that everyone is playing it relatively straight. And it sort of opens up this whole topic that's at the centre and sort of makes you sort of think about it more than I guess some other films would have. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, I'm very apt with what you say about everyone playing it straight as well, because again, like I said, this film could have gone, it could have easily sort of spiralled into a number of directions, gone very um, over the top, very dynasty, as I said, very soap opera, very overly dramatic. Um, and I think when I was sort of starting to look into this film, you know, with a lot of films like this, I just tried to go in as blind as possible and just take it on its own terms. But when I was looking at like the synopsis on this, I was kind of expecting to, to just write it off like from the get go, going into this. So in the back of my head, I was kind of thinking, um, mm, I don't know if this if this is if I'm going to really be the target audience for this film. Um, I don't know if this is going to grip me. Is this going to keep my interest? Um, I don't know. I suppose. I think for me, maybe it could have shared 10 minutes, maybe 20. There's maybe some twists it could have got to a little bit quicker um, for me. I will say I came at the end of this and there are some films you kind of think like, oh, wow, well, that was that was that is a film that exists. But this was like, okay, yeah. I mean, like, I didn't love it, didn't hate it, but I was like, it definitely um, exceeded some of my expectations for this, which I was quietly surprised by. Um, I think, like I said, I think I would have I would have liked it if they could have got to some of the twists a bit quicker because it it felt like they had to do it quite slow burn. Um, because all I'm trying to think of all the twists now. Um, you get with it, we find out at the start that Katie had stabbed someone who you think is the husband, but then we find out that. Um and and I suppose you know we're saying it's not like this, but in some ways it is a little bit so proper that. Uh, Angela and Brian's daughter Cora is actually her daughter because she'd she'd donated the egg, but she only had limited eggs because there was an infection with her ovaries. I think if I'm remembering that correctly, um, and that it was the same case for Maddie. She'd abducted Maddie, and that was she'd killed the mother because she was being negligent, drinking wine in the bath instead of attending to the daughter, and she'd killed the the father of Maddie and abducted her at the start. I think that's who that was. And then we find out as well that um uh the whole time she's actually been related to Cora and Maddie and Angela was telling the truth the whole time. Um and the Katie has avoided law enforcement detection for years by dyeing her hair and putting some contact lenses in. Um so I suppose with all these sort of the way they sort of um, I, I, w- I wouldn't say drag out. I don't think drag out is fair, but the way they space out, I suppose, is probably the better term here. They space out the twists. Um, again, with, with with all the twists and the pacing going back to this, but would you have liked to see them closer together? Do you think they worked the way they were? How are they for you? I mean, I think you're right. I think it could lose, you know, a good 10 minutes or so. I mean, there's a scene where you know, Angela breaks into her own guest house and she finds a, a book covered in post-its which scream like, I'm not mentally stable. And mm. then I think it's another five or 10 minutes before she then goes back in to <laughs> yeah. pick up the, the book is going to be her only proof to any, you know, any evidence of what she's saying. And the post-its have gone. 
and it's like oh no no what do I do I kind of feel that we you know that should have either been she should have just taken the book and then you know by some you know magic Katie's already got to the book and there's no post-it notes there rather than her finding another excuse to go back into the house to try and prove it so yeah I think there are some bits that definitely could have been could have been a little bit shorter and a little bit more to the point yeah completely agree because it's it it's kind of like we get to the halfway point maybe a bit before maybe a bit after and then suddenly it's kind of the slow burn cat and mouse game of um Angela building up this evidence repeatedly break it into the guest house which obviously she wants to be dis- discreet for because um that you know Kate is carrying the child here but part of me also thinks is like you were in the guest house just go in like you, I, I feel like maybe you've got the right to sort of burst in and have a have a nose around because you've got these suspicions. As we've said, obviously at this point, Brian was just like, "Oh my God, shut up! Would you shut up about Katie, please?" Um, basically, going into the guest house, then going back into the guest house, and then then trying to get DNA, um, and then Katie's drugging Angela, everyone's drugging everyone else. Um, a lot, <laughs> a lot of things just start like happening as we sort of enter like the final third. Um, they're getting the DNA results that obviously gives us that great bit of acting from Jonathan Baker like look at this DNA um, and then we get and then the, the, the sort of towards like the big climax here they've, they've cleared everyone out um, from the baby shower and then um, they're in the kitchen obviously before then Katie's found all the photos where she's been sort of uh, conveniently cropped out of the photos with the placement and then she's overheard Katie calling Cora her mother um and then everyone's, it only happens to be those two in the room. Uh, and she's found, oh, she's found the contact lenses as well by this point. Um, and then they've got the confrontation in the kitchen. And then Katie's just like, yep. Yep, you're right. Yep, yep, that's, you, you're completely right. So when all this is unraveling and you've got the um, the confrontation in the kitchen and we're, we're all just stabbing each other at this point. Everyone's stabbing each other. Uh, Nick Cage is there going... Been about as useful as he's been to both sides, really, at this point. Um, and then, you know, we've got 15 minutes left and we've got even more twists to come at the hospital. Um, this big confrontation culminating in some stabbings. Um, were, were you sort of on board at this point? Were you like, okay, this this is it? Because I think for me, um, there'd been so many twists upon twists upon left turns upon out of the blue twists that I was kind of like, I suppose a bit numb to it with all the twists at this point. I was like, sure, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, there's at that point, there's no going back for Katie because, you know, for all she knows, there's something you're recording. You know, where was the, you know, where was the uh, trophy mobile phone recording the confession? Mm. You know, for all she knew, that was that was there. But, you know, she, she opens up and she says, yeah, everything is right. But, you know, you used to have a drug addiction and you're clearly on drugs right now why is your husband going to believe you well you know they have been married for a number of years they've clearly made it through an addiction before so it's a little bit much for her to just assume that her husband is going to just write her off because she's carrying his baby presumably and I was kind of ready for the film to end there Mm -hmm. once I think once it gets to the hospital it starts to get really confusing like watching it back on a second watch knowing what happened 
there's you know there's this bit where it comes out and you know you you believe that Angela might not be okay then Angela's revealed to to be okay I didn't quite understand what was happening in that scene because you know a doctor comes out and he's shaking his head like I didn't understand who was supposed to be injured because nobody appeared to actually warrant <laughs> warrant that <laughs> This is kind of what I mean about sort of being numb to the twists as well, because this what this was the one that sort of reeks the most of like, not so much a twist, but just trying to deceive the audience. And um, obviously, uh, Kate and Andrew both being wheeled into like separate um, ambulances, and then you were, you were outright told that uh, Angela's dead; she's died yeah. from the stab wound. And then like the doc, and the doctor outright lies and says like. Shake his head like, yeah, like she didn't make it. And then Brian is telling Katie that she didn't make it. And then at that point, you're kind of like, I kind of thought, like I had to sort of pause and rewind. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like, I, okay, I wasn't expecting that. Another thing I wasn't expecting, par for the course for this film, throw another twist at me, right, why not? At this point, we've got 10 minutes left. Um, then I thought, okay, well, Okay, we got it's Brian and Kate, you know, this could be an interesting little dynamic. And then it kind of seemed like Brian was just going to be sort of tolerant to Katie because the, the Gabriel had been saved in the emergency C section. Um, and then Katie seems to think that her and Brian are going to live happily ever after now. Um, and then I think for, for Brian, we finally get a bit of bite from him at this point as well because he sort of he he wheels her after the emergency c-section medically i don't know if that's permitted he, he did it um he just took her straight out um and then we get that sort of um uh that sort of like quietly sort of scornful like take a look at the baby this is the last time you're ever gonna see him you'll find out why and i was like all right brian go on then yeah. Fine. all right here we are here we go there's the fucking husband i've been looking for um and then um Angela just rocks up, and I was like, "What? Yeah. What, what?" So when Angela turns up, I mean, what what was your reaction? I suppose, especially you know, from your first viewing to your second, when the final maybe twist reveal um, all comes to fruition here. I mean, it just it just doesn't make sense. The only way it <laughs> makes sense is if Katie is in the room when the doctor comes out and basically tells tells Brian she's dead. The only way it makes sense is Katie is in that room and it's Angela trying to throw Katie off the scent. I don't understand why Angela would make her husband think that she was dead unless it was just a, I don't know, a screw you for not believing me. But I kind of, in a way, I kind of wanted her to be dead, as bad as that sounds, but just mm. so that then, you know, when you do get this, you know, this great scene, with with Brian, you know, being really menacing and saying like that's it, you know, you're never going to see these children again. It's sort of like he would be avenging Angela and everything that he has lost through being so compliant and just kind of going along with it. But to have Angela appear again, just I think kind of waters waters that down a bit. Yeah, I can I completely agree. And again, obviously not to. Um make it sound more negative than it might come across. I, I kind of, I suppose I'd made, I guess that immediate piece and like, okay, like she's dead. I can accept that. And like, I don't know, maybe it would have served the story better if, if, if she had died. I'm still a bit 
in two minds on that, whether it would have been better if she was actually dead or if this final twist, because why not, was the best thing for it. Um, so it's, it is it is a confusing ending because you're asked to accept a lot and it's not even like it's... like We think Brian's accepting it as well and it is just just lies, like the film just straight out lies to you and then I, I kind of feel like Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not supposed to be the one who's taken for a ride here. I've been you, you've been asking me to accept enough as it is already. So then, it, you know, you, all of this happens, and then suddenly, uh, Katie's in a padded cell. She, there's that shot of her blinking and the eyes changing color, and I was kind of like, okay, because contact lenses, or she, we don't know who, or what she, or personality, and then. And then Brian and Angela now have three children and are living happily ever after. And I was like, oh, this is this has been a lot. This last 10 minutes has been a lot. Yeah, and I mean, so they've now essentially stolen Maddie as well, because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the couple who, who Maddie was taken from had other family next of kin who that child should have been placed with. But I guess, you know, if I mean, they're very rich doctors. I guess if you're rich enough, then you can make those sorts of problems disappear. It's very strange so i suppose the real message here is that money talks um (laughs) whether whether you are the characters in this film or you are jonathan baker money talks in hollywood maybe um i mean i don't even maybe it's and we come you know we come to the end of like the film here and then it's it's like after watching it and talking about it it's that's kind of the only thing going through my mind it's like Money talks, but remember, Jonathan Baker said this was a film for women, and I just, I don't know where I stand on this, quite honestly. Like, cause I didn't love it, I didn't hate it. I thought the performances were uh, serviceable to um to a confusing, in part, script. Um, but I suppose as we sort of look at uh, wrapping up here, what what would your, I guess, final thoughts be on um, on Inconceivable? I mean, for me. I mean, the title is is trash, and I think the title sort of under, <laughs> undersells undersells it, and you know makes people watch it. But it is it's it's one of those easy easy watches, you know, a Sunday afternoon. Let's just stick something on, you know. I'm full from mm. my from my dinner. Um, but I I think that the big thing that it's got in its favour is this sort of really muddy taboo topic at its at its heart with you know the the ownership of these eggs you know are they Katie's children because they're biologically her eggs or are they Angela and Brian's and I think I really enjoyed sort of trying to like puzzle my way through that because I think there is an argument where you could make Katie the protagonist rather than the antagonist because you know she's she's right these this couple seem to have just had these kids for a status thing to say that they've they've got kids they've had them and they're they don't really spend any time with them. The new kid that she's carrying, she's not going to be, you know, they're not going to be seeing because they're going to be at work all the time. Mm-hmm. So it is, I think it has that standing for it outside of your normal run-of-the-mill drama, um, lifetime drama, but it's not quite there enough. Like you said, I think it, it's a little bit too muddy to, to be something that you can watch and say, this is good. I think it's somewhere along that guilty 
guilty pleasure sort of sort of line than a this is a solid good film <laughs> yeah i think that's a very fair assessment it's on the um it's on the precipice of guilty pleasure i think it's somewhere there and like i said i think i think there could have been a more interesting film here there are the seeds of like an interesting thriller here um maybe it's the first time direction from jonathan baker him touching up this script um maybe under a more experienced hand there could have been something quite interesting here um but i think for um the female centric good intentions of the film so say jonathan baker um i don't think we quite got the finished article here um although like i said again didn't i was expecting to absolutely just hate every part of this film and i didn't so it's it's surprising it's it's a quiet sunday little sunday film um although you know will you be a massive fan of it afterwards i don't know that you will um but it's it's not not the worst film not the worst film i've ever seen so fair play to you inconceivable even though as you said cat the title is absolute trash um I think on that bombshell, as we come to sort of wrap up the episode, uh, Kat Hughes, thank you so much for joining me um, this week. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. For the listeners, uh, where can we find you on the socials and such? Uh, so I write for uh, The Hollywood News at THN.com and uh, my personal Twitter is at Gizmo Shikari. Um, it's an amalgamation of the pets' names. Gizmo Bauer, Ratchet Shikari. So uh, at Gizmo Shikari on all socials. Wonderful. And all links will be in the description as per. Uh, we come to the end of the episode this week. Thank you again. Massive thanks, Kat Hughes, for joining me. It's been a pleasure to have you join on the journey to true cage nirvana and with that said we wrap things up thank you for listening if you have been we'll see you in the next one but until then keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do thank you take care and goodbye